This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a really outstanding show today, and uh, we're going to be talking about the Israeli and Palestinian elections with one of the foremost uh, analysts, you know, in the region, Diana Butu. It's a really excellent, excellent interview, and we'll be getting updates on that. And, uh, you know, sometime afterwards, we're going to be covering a lot of other things that are going on in the world right now, whether it's the pandemic, mass shootings, all things going on related to kind of the domestic challenges that we're facing in this country. But back to the Israeli and Palestinian elections, Jamal, I never, how can I say this? It never seeks to amaze me, even in the New York Times and the Washington Post, how blatantly and disturbingly racist the coverage is of Palestinians who reside in Israel and have Israeli citizenship, how they get labeled, how they get spoken about, and at a time when Palestinians may decide the next Israeli election, the way they get labeled as Islamists and Arabs. No mention of Palestine, and I'm sure we'll hear uh, Diana's take on that. Yeah, first let's let's uh, listen to Diana because this uh, interview happened before the results, which we will talk about uh, the, the results uh, just, you know, started to come. And I think the final numbers will come on Friday. Right. So here is Diana Butto. The Palestinian Legislative Council's elections will be held on May 22nd this year. Elections for the presidency will be held on the 31st of July and the Palestinian National Council of the PLO on the 31st of August. Also today, March 21st, Israelis vote in their fourth parliamentary election in just two years. Once again, the race boils down to a referendum on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Joining us from Palestine to discuss this and more, Diana Butto, former legal advisor to Palestine Liberation Organization Chairman Mahmoud Abbas and Palestinian negotiators. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Diana. Thank you, Jamal. It's always a delight to be on your show. Thank you. Let me begin with the Israeli elections because it's uh, happening today. So what I've been reading that the vote count will be delayed uh, due to coronavirus regulations, but it seems that Netanyahu is winning, according to some Israeli reports. Is this the case or is it too early to tell? Um, yes, no, he's definitely winning. And and in fact, Jamal, there's kind of no way for him to lose. And what I mean by this is that um, uh, Netanyahu is now Israel's longest serving prime minister. Many voters only know him, especially younger voters, only know him and, um, and support him. And what I mean by there being no, there's no way that he can lose is that there has been no effective opposition. We saw in the last election when we saw Lapid come together with Benny Gantz that when instantly when they joined the coalition with Netanyahu, that instantly um, Netanyahu managed to play Gantz like a fiddle and, and we saw the, the complete capitulation of Gantz. So in the eyes of many, there really is no alternative to Netanyahu. 
But I think it's also important to bear in mind that there is no alternative to Netanyahu because they're all the same. They're all very much holding on to the same political program. And that political program is one of um, continued apartheid, continued racism, continued colonization of the West Bank, continuing the siege on the Gaza Strip, and making sure that Palestinians are forever under Israel's rule. So whether that individual is Netanyahu or Gans or Lapid or Bennett or Saar or any of these uh, figures, the political program remains the same. The only thing that's changing is the name. So um, according to the uh, Israel's newspaper Haaretz, uh, Israeli election this time Arabs are the target, that's the headline, not the subject of this information. Unlike uh, previous Israeli elections that saw misinformation spread against Arabs in Hebrew, this time Israel Arabs are enjoying bespoke propaganda in Arabic and even uh, Likud is uh, reaching out to Arabs. And, and look, Netanyahu is promising direct flights from Tel Aviv to Mecca, even though, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia's international airport is in Jeddah. I mean, what's going on with this? Um, look, I think that's actually a huge misinformation campaign. And I do want to say that that uh, we are always the targets. We're the targets of in one way or the other. And I'll break it down for you. So Netanyahu, as I was mentioning, it doesn't matter who the, the person is, just the name change. And the reason I say this is because over the past decade, if not two decades, there really has been no real opposition to Netanyahu. Um, the only opposition that has been forming formed in 2015 with the formation of the joint list. And as you know, the joint list consists of four political parties that have come together, anti-Zionist political parties that have come together that largely encompass the vast majority of Palestinian voters. They, they managed to get the lion's share of Palestinian voters. Now, you'll recall, uh, Jamal, that in 2015, when the joint list was actually formed, that Netanyahu, in one of the rare moments of raw Netanyahu without being polished, went on, on Facebook and in a broadcast said, hurry out, go out and vote because the Arabs are voting in droves. Now, at the time, you'll remember that that statement met with a lot of condemnation, including at the time, um, the U.S. president. Barack Obama. But since that time, the joint list has been his target, and he's trying to bring down the number of people who vote um, for the joint list. He's trying to reduce that number. He did that in the election 2019 by installing cameras in a lot of the polling station in order to intimidate voters and to suppress voters. He did it again in the other elections where he um, kept uh, saying he kept he started this theme of what is it that the that the MKs have done for you lately, and this time around what he's done is he has promised that good things will happen to the Palestinian community if either they vote for him or if they don't vote for the joint list. Now, to be clear, he's not expecting to be getting lots of votes from Palestinians. But what he is hoping to see is the, 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 the joint list will no longer be as strong. And on this, he's correct. And the reason that it's not going to be as strong is because 
what was once a party that was once, which was once a movement that consisted of four political parties has now turned into a movement that consists of three parties with the fourth party, namely the Islamic movement, breaking off on its own. What that means is that both of those, both the joint list and the Islamic movement will need to be able to pass the threshold of three and a quarter percent to be able to get seats in the Knesset. And anybody can add up the numbers and do it, even if voter turnout stays this, is the same as it was in the last election. We're still going to see a, a drop in the number of seats for the joint list. But given that there's been this split within the joint list, we are expecting to see even lower voter turnout. So this is precisely what Netanyahu wanted. He's not at all expecting Arab votes. He doesn't even care for those votes. All that he wants to see is that there's no opposition. And the way that he does that is by making sure that the number of votes that are cast for the joint list actually decrease in number rather than increase in number. And on this, he's going to be very successful. And the turnout now, has, was, been, has been less because that's what I've been reading, that ter the turnouts uh, of Arabs absolutely. is much less than the year before. Absolutely. And that's exactly the problem is that even if it were to stay the same, which it won't, we, the joint list will have lost um, at least one seat in the Knesset. But we're already seeing that people are very upset uh, with the dissolution of the joint list. And so the numbers have already dropped. We're, I'm expecting to see much lower numbers than, than even the, in not just the last election, but the election before. But I want to say something, Jamal, about this whole issue. Um, it is false to think that Netanyahu is actually trying to go after our votes. He's trying to destroy the joint list. And, and I say this for a reason. If he genuinely wanted to do something for Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship, he doesn't need to do, he doesn't need to to woo us over. He could have easily done. It. He's the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. And instead, this is the same prime minister who put forward the Jewish nation state law. This is the same uh, the same prime minister who put forward the, the Kaminus law, which allows for the demolition of Palestinian homes. These are Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, um, demolition of their homes. This is the same prime minister who has made racist statement after racist statement. This is the same prime minister who has entered into a, an agreement with the Jewish Power Party, the party that supports very strongly Meir Kahane, and who talks about Baruch Goldstein being their hero. There are so many things that he could have done, but he's chosen not to. Instead, what he wants to see is the dissolution of the joint list. And on this final point, you know, that it's the same Likud just three days ago. One member of Likud came out and said that um, Palestinians who are citizens, who hold Israeli citizenship, um, our fifth column, he used the, that term, fifth column, and that we take our orders from Iran and from the Palestinian Authority. And just two days ago, Smotrich, another man who is, who is very closely allied with Netanyahu, came out and said that Islam is, is a religion of violence. And these are not people who care to have our votes. These are people who seek our suppression and oppression and to think that somehow Netanyahu is going to turn over a new leaf is to is is to believe in the tooth fairy. So, if Netanyahu wins, we could possibly see the likes of Itmar Ben Gvir becoming a Knesset member. I mean, I mean, now this is in broad daylight. Uh, you know, the Meir Kahana was uh, outlawed. Uh, you know, uh, the membership of. Uh, 
uh, his party, uh, and now they're back in, in the Knesset or the Israeli uh, parliament. Yes, precisely. So Itamar Ben-Nikvir, so that people are aware, this is the, the head of the Jewish Power Party. This is a man who, um, in Purim, during one year in Purim, um, dressed up. This is, he's an adult. He dressed up as Baruch Goldstein and is on tape as saying that Baruch Goldstein is his hero. Remember, Baruch Goldstein is the man who massacred 29 Palestinians in February in 1994 in Hebron as they were praying in the Hamid Ibrahim, Ibrahimi Mosque. And this is a man who makes no, um, he doesn't even make any excuses for and is certainly uh, shameless about his position regarding ethnic cleansing. Um, he is somebody who is who it just relishes in the in the fact that um, that he is, supports uh, Goldstein and is an offshoot of the Kahane, uh, the Mayor Kahane pro, uh, Party, the Kach Party. Right. Moving on to Palestinian elections, there have been several false starts and broken promises. The Palestinian Legislative Council last met more than a decade ago. President Abbas has been in office since 2005. Do you think that Palestinians are hopeful and looking forward to change or that they are just drinking the Kool-Aid and they're not serious about this and nothing is going to change based on their previous experience? Well, it's a great question, Jamal. So the last time that the Palestinian parliament even met was 15 years ago. It was in it was in March of 2006. So they haven't even met since 2006, much less passed new legislation. Um, Abbas dissolved the parliament in December of 2019. And so we've actually had no parliament since 2006, but then formally dissolved since 2019. It's a mixed bag in terms of whether people are hopeful or not. Look, on the one hand, uh, I, I really do believe that political movements can only grow either through a process of elections or by doing something, about showing that something is being done, that they don't grow just through stagnant, um, through lack of activity or through lack of elections, that you need to people get people motivated and give them hope. So, so it's important to have elections. The problem with these elections this time around is that there's a lot of suspicion that they won't happen. I think they might, though. Um, but more importantly is that it's, it, there's a bigger question of how are these going elections going? How are these elections going to happen, and what is it that people are actually voting for? To be clear, this is not going to be an election about. Um, strategy or goals. This isn't going to be about, do we believe in ending Oslo or coming up with a, a new strategy or, or, or supporting BDS? It's not what this is going to be about. It's really going to be about changing the faces, if at all possible, because people are sick of the, the same faces over and over again. And Abu Mazen knows this, and because he knows this, he's put into place a number of uh, presidential decrees, which are what he uses when there is no parliament. He's, he's passed so many of them. In fact, he's passed more presidential decrees than there are laws in the Palestinian Legislative Council. And a, a few of those decrees really focus on who is eligible to run in these elections. And you know, I'll, I'll give you some of the restrictions. 
Um, as I'm sure you know, Jamal, there is no political parties law that's in place in Palestine. And what that means is that the only political parties that can operate are the ones that are already pre-established. Mm-hmm. What that means is that the only time that we can get people um, to be involved in the in the political process is only around election time. And as you know, political work doesn't just happen around election time. You need to be creating a base and a platform for years in advance of any election. And yet that doesn't exist in, in Palestine. Then add to that that he's placed a number of restrictions. The first restriction being that there's an age limit. Anybody who's under the age of 28 is not eligible to run in these elections. Another restriction is that any person who was formerly a member of the central, the PLO Central Committee is not eligible to run. The reason he's doing that on the face of it, it seems normal, but it's because he wants to, he's kicked out so many people and he wants to block off any opposition. Another thing that he's done is that um, any person who is currently and and, uh, currently an employee of the Palestinian Authority must resign from their post in advance of running. And as I'm sure you know, it usually works the other way around. You know, you run and then if you win, then you resign from your post. But in this case, he's seeking a guarantee that a person resigns before they even run. Now, what that means is that for many people, this is their only source of income. They can't afford it. What's that? They can't afford it. And they can't afford it. Add to that another financial matter, which is that any list that comes together has to come up with a $20,000 fee. Now, given this environment that we live in with Corona and so on, all of these restrictions are really designed to make sure that any that nobody is allowed to run who is uh, who is an opponent of Abbas, who's opposed to him. So while elections are important, I, I believe in them. I'm also very well aware that what he's trying to do is tailor make this election and make sure that the outcome is the outcome that he wants to see rather than the outcome that we want to see. So the uh, uh, recent polling um, uh, that was done in December shows that Hamas leaders and uh, Mahmoud Abbas are very unpopular with Correct. 61% wanting the latter to resign and only 31% believing he is the best candidate in his party. Several other figures, including the imprisoned Marwan Barghouti, command far more support among the public. Uh, these are the results of a poll conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research Uh, in the West Bank and uh, Gaza Strip between December 11th and the 14th of of December. So how accurate is this? Uh, Do you think, um, I mean, mean, for what I heard, everything he's doing because he knows that basically he's not popular and and hence uh, you've mentioned something important. Like, for example, I was reading that the... uh, Fatah, the Palestinian movement, has sacked one of its uh, most prominent leaders, Nasser al-Qadwa, uh, and stripped him of his party membership. And of course, uh, al-Qadwa is the nephew of former uh, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. And uh, he and Abu Mazen never got along. And uh, he was seeking to create a party, the National Democratic Assembly. So, uh, So what you're saying is, None of these people are qualified. If, I mean, how is Nasser Kudwa going to run 
when he's basically has all these uh, restrictions. Marwan Barghout is in Israeli jail, so maybe he even will he will win from 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 jail. And then and recently I was like looking to see. Also, former Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad also said that uh, he's submitting a, a list of independent candidates. But are, I mean, who's left? I mean, for one thing, these names are old names, so it's kind of recycling some old names. And then you're saying if you're under 28, and we know the Palestinian population, vast majority of Palestinians are under the age of 28, who's left? This is, uh, this is the million-dollar question, uh, Jamal. This is it. This is exactly the million-dollar question. He kicked out Nasser Qudwa from Fatah because Nasser wanted to establish a different Fatah list. He wanted to have a Fatah list that he views as being much more representative of Fatah and include people like Marwan Barghouti and others who aren't exactly enamored with the way that Abu Mazen has steered the party. And this is why he ended up getting kicked out from it. And uh, oh, another matter that I forgot to mention in all of this is that he's now, Abu Mazen has also established something called an elections court um, to oversee these decisions about who can and cannot run. In short, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to cut out any opposition. And given that he's also trying to limit the number of pe- the age of people who can vote, he's really looking to make sure that it's only his survival and that's it. And and so this is why I predict that we might have legislative council elections, but I'm fairly certain we're not going to have presidential elections at the end of July. Um, In terms of who is it who's left, this is why it's so important for for us to have this political parties law, because because had there been a political parties law, there could have been an attempt to actually bring people together, form a new political party and start doing that political work that's necessary and gain that experience. But instead, what he's done is any political work that has been done has been suppressed. You know, I'm sure you were well aware of the of the fact that he has suppressed opposition. He's imprisoned opposition and, and so on because he doesn't want to see any alternative come through. In other words, Abu Mazen wants to be reelected again, and he wants to be given the legitimacy of being reelected again and the mandate of being reelected again. And he knows that the only way that he can do that is by eliminating all of these other people, including all of these old names, that many of them are tired and... uh, it's really time for a brand new generation, but Abu Mazen knows this and instead is going to continue to try to eliminate everybody else so that it looks as though he's really the only viable candidate. The question is why go through all this exercise? Uh, is he coming under pressure from the Biden administration? Is it the donor countries, Saudi Arabia, the EU? Uh, why is he doing this? I mean, he's already kind of charted down the route that for his re-election. Yes, it's a combination, Jamal, of things. So all of the political, the public opinion polls are showing that the number one issue that is affecting Palestinians is the, the split between Hamas and Fatah. Um, Hamas and Fatah both are well aware that their political survival is at risk and that their, their movements are not growing. Um, There's also pressure that's being brought to bear from the Biden administration, as well as from the donors, particularly since December of 2019, when 
when he ended up uh, canceling or suspending the par- dismissing the parliament. Um, and so it's a combination of things. It's it's domestic considerations, it's international considerations, it's uh, donor considerations. It's all of these things come together. And so he's going through the process. And I will say, I, I do believe that it is important for us to have the ability to, to vote. The question is, what are we voting for? And and where, where I'm very concerned is that we're not voting on ideas. We're not having um, a referendum about Oslo or about where we should be going in the future. It's simply just um, copy paste, copy paste the same old names from before, and uh, just you know shuffling shuffling the the names somewhere along the way. That's it. So uh, looking forward, Netanyahu is going to get elected. Yes. Uh, Abu Mazen will get re-elected if if the elections go through. Same old, same old. Uh, what what's for Palestinians to look forward to? I mean, nothing has advanced under these two, and you know what's going to happen. I think that now that that box has opened when it comes to elections, this is where it needs to be kicked even wider open and made sure that we are given a space to be able to really change and vote even wider than um, than just simply who, the head of the, the, who's in the legislative council or the president. I don't think the presidential elections are going to happen. And I think that this is where a lot of movement building needs to happen. Look, Jemen, for far too long, um, because of the way that Omezin has held on to power, there hasn't been a lot of, um, there, there, he's, he's crushed any form of opposition. And I think now that this space has been opened up is where people need to be working to try to open up that space even further to make sure that we have a viable opposition and are able to move forward. Um, otherwise, we are, you're absolutely right, we're going to be trapped in the same cycle over and over and over again. When it comes to Netanyahu, yes, he's going to win the election. He is going to be the next prime minister once again. And we are going to see a coalition that is the most right-wing coalition because the whole landscape, by the way, is right-wing. Merits, which is the only presumably left-wing party, and even that I question, um, is going to be decimated. It probably won't pass the threshold, which means that it won't have any seats in the Knesset. And so the only shape of government is going to be uh, the, is going to be a right wing, and then that is split into two of those who support Netanyahu for, versus those who don't support it. So yes, we will continue to see that Netanyahu, in some shape or form, whether he's prime minister directly or the ideas of Netanyahu, continue to be in shape or form. That said, it's still so vitally important for us to be organizing and pushing and demanding for change and. Um, and, and this is why, for me, I think it's so it's so vitally important for us to be really making sure that we are able to organize and push for a different PLO, something that is actually representative, that isn't just looking at, at the West Bank and Gaza and some sort of silly power sharing agreement, but instead that's looking at what does this mean for Palestinians as a whole? What does it mean for us as a people, as a community, as a society? 
Last time you and I spoke on this show, we talked about the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And uh, recently, uh, Israel uh, canceled the VIP for the Palestinian Foreign Minister, uh, Riyad al-Maliki. Uh, and, and what is this? Is that like because of, they said, you know, a report said because of uh, his position on the ICC. Is this a knee-jerk reaction or is this a, is this a message to to Abu Mazen that uh, he's next and... Uh, you know, things will change on the ground as far as movement and traveling abroad and, uh, you know, because of the ICC? You know, I, I have to say, so um, I don't like the VIP system. I don't think any of us like the VIP system. And I'm not somebody who's going to be um, uh, advocating for the VIP system. I think that we all have freedom of movement, or we should, all should have the right to move freely. And we shouldn't be going down the path of advocating for the right of some to be moving freely versus the right of others to be moving freely. So I'm somebody who blanket believes that all of us should have the right to movement because it is our country. That said, this is a, this decision is exactly highlighting the system of occupation that exists. That um, that even those who were part of the privileged class. Once you cross Israel, you are no longer part of that privileged class and you become like every other person in Palestine. And, uh, and so that, this is the message that they're, show, that they're saying is that they're, they're, they're showing their muscles and saying to the Palestinian Authority, you better worry because you are next. You, you, you watch it, what you're going to be, watch what you're doing because slowly we're going to be taking away your privileges. And, um, and so this is why I think it's in in a way it's um, um, it's it's very not in a way it is very telling about what Israel is about and and how it wields its power. It's about trying to control and it wields its power by demanding submission. If you don't submit, then you don't get privileges. But if you do submit, then you do get privileges. And I don't know whether this is going to resonate further on up or higher up. But I already know that, that Israel is using its proxies, such as the United States, to exert pressure on the Palestinian Authority to abandon any, um, any claim or demand for investigation um, against uh, Israeli war crimes. So it's already happening that, that they're wielding their, power, their muscle. It's just a question of time before they eventually turn around and get to Abu Mazen and say, you're the next target, just in the same way that they turned on on Arafat and, and he became their target as well. Last question uh, before we leave. Israel is getting all these accolades uh, that's, that it's exceeding all expectations in vaccinating uh, its population uh, against COVID. Meanwhile, I read the report that's like, the situation is very dire in the West Bank, in Ramallah, the uh, Bethlehem, other places. People are dying. The hospitals are don't have basically there any beds left, and uh, and yet you know, like I said, everybody's praising Israel that they're doing such a great job, and nobody's talking about that. Fifty percent of the population that Israel controls is not receiving any COVID except for those who work in Israel, like uh, Palestinian laborers. Correct. Yes. So um, they shouldn't be getting any accolades whatsoever. Um, 
You know, back in the 1950s, when Palestinians were living, Palestinians who were inside 48, when they were living under Israeli military rule, one of the few ways that that they were able to access healthcare was um, through Israelis viewing this in a boomerang effect. So, for example, if there was an outbreak of cholera, you know, cholera just doesn't confine itself to Palestinian communities. It can it can boomerang into um, Jewish Israeli communities as well. And that was when Palestinians ended up getting healthcare. Was if it could boomerang into Jewish Israeli society. And similarly, we see that the only people so far that have gotten the vaccine, and after a great deal of pressure, by the way, were uh, are the Palestinian workers who come in and either work in the settlements or work inside 48 on a daily basis for that same reason of the boomerang effect. But you know, there's a bigger issue here, which is that um, which is that Israel is not is under an obligation under international law to actually provide vaccines and to make sure that they deal with the outbreak of epidemics and contagious diseases. These are all things, these are all things that are enshrined in the Fourth Geneva Convention. And Israel knows very well that this is part of international law. But what they've done is they've hidden behind this um, false pretext that somehow the Palestinian Authority is its own governing authority, which it's not. If it were its own authority, then Palestinians would be able to move freely. They'd be able to hold on to the population registry. They'd be able to to add people to the population registry. They'd be able to do a whole import things, but they don't. And we're seeing it now at an absolutely critical stage, uh, Jamal, that all of the 200 ventilators that are in Palestinian hospitals are now in use, 100% of them. And doctors are now making decisions about who gets to be on a ventilator and who doesn't. These are the decisions of who gets to live and who gets to die. And the fact that we have to even look to international law rather than cite, rather than look to humanity and ask ourselves, is this really the country that should be getting all the accolades when they're, when they're allowing Palestinians to die because they're refusing to give vaccines to them while at the same time giving vaccines to countries like Honduras and Guatemala because they've moved their embassies illegally from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I think we need to have a reset of what it is that's, uh, that gets accolade, that gets praise and accolades, because this is definitely not a country that should be getting accolades for, for the things that it's doing. It's the opposite. It should be condemned for not giving Palestinians um, the vaccine rather than being praised for, for vaccinating so quickly. Diana Buto, thank you for sharing your analysis on Arab Talk and we hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you, Shaman. It's always my pleasure. That's uh, Diana Butu, foremost political you know, analyst in the region, speaking about uh, both the Israeli and the Palestinian elections, how they relate and in the current context. And you're right, Jamal, she didn't quite have the most recent results, which put Benjamin Netanyahu and the opposition in literally a dead heat right now without any, any clear winner. That's right. So uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Likud, that's his party, they still emerged as the largest party with the majority of the vote, which which she predicted, uh, counted in Israel's, uh, this is an unprecedented fourth election in two years. And, and we might be heading to a fifth one that's if, right. if the, these results don't change. 
So uh, Netanyahu still does not have a clear path to a 61-seat majority needed to form a coalition. Uh, so the vote count, as I mentioned earlier, is expected to continue through Friday, and then we know the exact numbers. So then you have the anti-Netanyahu bloc, uh, which is comprised basically of uh, the left, the right, uh, and centrist factions, who also are shy of a majority. So that's what you're talking about, the dead heat. And, and now the biggest winners, and this is the important thing, which actually Diana spoke about, are going to be the fascist Kahanists who will have seats, regardless whether Netanyahu stays, he doesn't stay, if there is a coalition government or not. They will have a number of seats in the Israeli Knesset. And of course, when we talk about the Kahanists, they they are the followers of the notorious Meir Kahana, who founded the Kach, Party. Before that, he was in the United States. He founded the, the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, then went to Israel. And, 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 and for the record, both Israel and the U.S. have declared Kach, the Kach movement, to be a terrorist organization. So they, so they got banned. However, now what happened, they repackaged themselves. That's right. And uh, will be returning to the Knesset under a, a new umbrella. And, of course, what uh, Diana alluded to, uh, this should not be a surprise to anyone, knowing the history uh, of, uh, of Israel and the Zionist movement. And if we're just going to pick any couple of names, we can go and say, well, uh, you got Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir, both were charged with terrorism, so they That's were terrorists. Right. That's right. Linked to the King David Hotel bombing and the Deir Yassin massacre and the assassination of the United Nations uh, peace negotiator, uh, Count uh, Bernadotte, you know, among other crimes. They became leaders of uh, their uh, parties and they became prime ministers. So, So when people, in a way, say, oh, my God, you know, uh, the Knesset is getting is being taken over by fascists, and it's always yeah, they've always had fascists. That's that's just kind of like there are the old fascists or the old terrorists who became prime ministers, and or are the good fascists, according to according to Israeli media, and then the bad one that everyone talks about is the followers of the, the Meir Kahana, and I'm sure ten years from now they'll be the good ones. So right. But the, the interesting thing for me, Jamal, is that there is a Palestinian uh, Arab party that may in fact be, and we put this on quotes, be put in the position of being the kingmaker. And that's the party that's headed by Mansour Abbas, who's a dentist uh, with the you know Druze community that is being um, targeted and has been targeted in the Negev desert with, you know, uh, having their villages destroyed and they've had decades of dispossession. He's in control of a party that controls, I think it's four or five seats right now, Jamal. And ironically, they could be in a position of deciding who the next Israeli prime minister and the control of the Knesset will be. It's a very interesting play right now. 
Well, actually, not not, not just uh, this party, and, and and you're talking about the United Arab List Party. That's right. Uh, headed by Mansour Abbas, and then you have Naftali Bennett's Yamina, also on, right. on the other side. So between these two small parties, uh, and and until they to declare their support to you know either Benjamin Netanyahu or another bloc. We won't know. So they, you're right. So both of them could play, uh, and that's why you have the almost the dead heat because if uh, they they shift their weight, let's say, and back uh, Netanyahu, you know Netanyahu will be prime minister forever. I mean, he keeps for playing sixth, this game for the sixth time. Yeah, and and so yeah, so you're right. They have an important role, and that's where. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, the negotiations will begin. Probably they've already have begun, uh, but definitely, uh, you know, throughout this weekend, uh, especially uh, since the numbers will be finalized on Friday, the negotiations uh, will begin. And uh, in the past, uh, Netanyahu emerged as the winner. So I'm not going to discount him pulling the same thing again. Never, never discount the opportunity for an opportunist. And Benjamin Netanyahu is an opportunist. He's being uh, charged and is in the middle of a trial for massive corruption. And despite that, he is easily capable of winning a sixth term and delaying and delaying and delaying being held accountable for among the worst corruption in Israeli political history. Of course, uh, Diana Butto also talked about and analyzed what's going to happen uh, with the Palestinian elections. First the legislative, then you're moving into the presidential ones. Should they happen? And that's why there is that question should. mark. Should. But if and should they happen, especially the presidential ones, Mahmoud Abbas put himself in a position to to easily win because he passed all these different restrictions, who can run and who cannot run, and you have to pay $20,000 to put your name. And if you are a member uh, of the Palestinian government, uh, you have to resign, which is which is kind of ludicrous. You know, like here in the United States, if you are a senator or a congressman or a congresswoman and you run for presidential elections, you, you resign after you win, but he's after asking his opponents right. to resign now so they won't be receiving any salary. And a lot of them, they need that salary. So there are a lot of tricks and, 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 and things in a way to kind of uh, assure him a win. But anyway, I mean, she spoke about that. Uh, I want to move on to um, a couple of other topics. One quick one, uh, Jess, is that uh, a new Gallup poll was released has some interesting numbers. Yes, very interesting. And that relates to the Palestinians and Israelis. And uh, you have, and uh, for example, 53% of Democrats, now they're opting for more pressure to be put on Israel. And this is up from 43% in 2018. It's a big jump. And it is uh, up from 38% a decade ago. So there is a big shift, and we've seen the uh, APAC and you know the Israeli lobby trying to fight this because you and I talked about it 
when uh, they went after Bernie Sanders in That's the right. 2020 primaries because he proposed making U.S. aid to Israel conditional on how they treat uh, Palestinians. So that was kind of like the first signs of this, uh, of that this is, has become bothersome uh, to them. Uh, well, Jamal, Gallup- but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic uh, percentage change in a short period of time. And you have a combination of contemporary American Jewish community, uh, younger generation, not feeling connected to Israel, uh, to the Israeli regime and the apartheid practices, kind of distancing themselves from it. And then you have progressive elements of the Democratic Party, which are getting more powerful and are more powerful now. So that shift to 53%, we will only anticipate growing and getting even larger as time goes on. It seems like J Street and APAC and the pro-Israel forces in the United States are really facing a reckoning as time goes on and as the demographics within the Democratic Party change. And two more uh, percentages here. Uh, yeah. Also, according to the Gallup poll, uh, uh, this is a uh, this is a, across the not just the Democratic Party but ma- the majority of Americans, fifty-two percent. That's right. Now favor a Palestinian state, while thirty-seven percent oppose it. So that's also a major shift. Uh, and Jamal, however, if you look at the how, ages, uh, if you, I'm sorry to interrupt, if you look at the ages of those who oppose a Palestinian state, you'll be surprised, not too surprised to see that there's significantly older people who have bought into the, you know, old kind of narrative of, of, uh, uh, of the Israeli uh, regime. So things are changing pretty rapidly. Yeah, um Definitely on the Democratic side, and that's what kind of why the numbers uh, basically say a narrow majority of Americans, which is still uh, significant because 80% of Republicans uh, sympathize more with, with Israel compared with just 10% who sympathize with Palestinians. So that's where you see the major difference between the Democrats and, the, and then the, uh, you should, as you've said, the progressive elements of the Democratic Party and the youth uh, who are actually supporting a Palestinian statehood. Unfortunately, of course, there were, the, I looked at the different questions. They don't talk about, um, they should like, you know, it's kind of like basically support a Palestinian state, you don't support a Palestinian state, but they don't, don't talk, for example, about uh, a, uh, the, uh, Equal rights and uh, BDS and apartheid and right. and perhaps right. asking the question: What about a one state or a binational state? That that I think I'll be very interested uh, to hear something about it. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, eighty nine point five FM. Of course, we're going to talk about this uh, subject that keeps repeating itself. Just terrible, Jamal. Two mass murders a week apart, and Congress is still debating gun control. There's still, I mean, it's just like we go through this. It's, it's like a deja vu all over again. Every time we have a mass murder, they start talking about oh, gun control. We got a ban. 
semi-automatic weapons, and of course the Republicans, they start screaming, you're going to strip us uh, of the uh, Second Amendment, and then we go nowhere. That's the history in this country, Jamal, and it seems like the Republicans like uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley have their talking points after so many people have been murdered, both in Atlanta and in Boulder, Colorado. We know, for example, that, uh, you know, reasonable gun control, which means everybody should get a background check and, you know, banning assault rifles, you know, which are uh, weapons of war. These two simple, 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 uh, you know, uh, changes uh, would dramatically reduce, and it's been shown empirically, I mean, we have the studies to support that, would dramatically reduce the amount of mass murders and killings occurring in this country. Even though the majority of Americans, Jamal, looks like over 75 to 80 percent of Americans, Republicans and Democrats and independents, support reasonable gun control, you have the extreme elements of the Republican Party, Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, Josh Hawley, primarily in the Senate, who say these things, and as you said, you're going to take away our Second Amendment rights. And the thing that I find most appalling is hearing Ted Cruz talk about how the Democrats are making this a political issue. Because the Republican solution, Jamal, when there's a mass murder, is more guns. That's, that's their answer. If we have more guns, if we make guns easier, if more people have guns, then we will have less gun violence. There's no data anywhere in the world, even in the United States, to support the idea that more guns reduce violence. There are more guns in the United States, Jamal, than there are people in the United States. And yet the Republicans keep shoving it down our throats. And again, even though 80% of the entire population want gun control, it's those people in the Senate who believe in the filibuster, who believe in white supremacy, who believe in this idea that uh, the few should govern the many, are, are holding the entire country hostage right now. So this whole debate is really for sure, because, uh, I mean, knowing the makeup of the Senate, you have uh, the, the Senate is split 50-50. Right. It leaves the Democrats in need of 10 Republicans. Or, to change, pass any or, major, or get rid of the uh, filibuster. Any major, yeah, any major uh, le legislation, right? They're not going to get that, and it's just like uh, you know, we're going to wait for another uh, um, catastrophe to happen. Well, uh, I do want to say again something. for this debate because I was looking at it whether President Biden can use his executive power, right? And bypass this because we're not get we're not going to get anywhere through the Senate. Well, unless there's unless they decide to get rid of the filibuster, and there's some talk going on that they may negotiate uh, not getting rid of the filibuster in exchange for getting the ten Republicans to push through some kind of reasonable gun control. And I think the most ease the easiest thing to do, Jamal is just to make sure that if you buy a gun, you have to register it and you have to get a background check. That's Well, not just to buy the gun. Why do you need to have an automatic or semi-automatic gun for hunting? 
Why yeah. do you need to have to have a machine gun for right. hunting? I mean, that's actually... A weapon of war. A weapon of war, to me, that's more important. I want to speak briefly just about also something that happened between these two horrible, horrible mass murders. Both of them are horrible, terrible. The one in Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, and of course, Boulder, Colorado, the most recent one, and how the media uh, has been covering both of them. Do you know that after the recent uh, murder, uh, a mass murder in, in Boulder, uh, on Twitter and other social media uh, outlets, the word Islamic or he is a Muslim uh, started to trend. They were, uh, they were trending. Right. Um, it didn't happen, you know, for example, after the mass murder in Georgia, Atlanta, saying he's a Christian or he's a, this, you know, didn't like all of a sudden the recent uh, um, perpetrator, Ahmed Al-Alawi Al-Isa, who was identified as the uh, shooter uh, on, on Tuesday because of his name, because of his background. Uh, the discussion became like, okay, he's a Muslim, he's a, an immigrant, although he came to this country very early. And the coverage on the Atlanta one was more like, oh, uh, you know, uh, he had a, ba- a really bad day. He had a bad day. And, and, and right. he was seeking to eliminate a sexual temptation uh, prior to killing eight people. This is according to the sheriff's captain in Georgia who said that in a press conference. I mean, isn't that disturbing? Well, it's more than disturbing, Jamal. It's part of the pattern of how the media wants to continue to throw out that old canard, that old narrative that uh, it's an Islamic terrorist, you know, context. That any time someone who has a particular last name or who looks a particular way, they're going to throw that label on it. What we do know so far about the... Uh, the perpetrator and his alleged crimes is that he had serious mental health problems, and that is continuing to be downplayed in the in the media. And let's not forget, um, as you said, Jamal, we always need to keep this in mind. When will they start saying things like, "Well, a Christian fundamentalist committed the crime uh, in Atlanta, Georgia"? We would never hear something like that, as you said. So the bias in the media continues. Let's wait till all the information comes in. I will just end this segment by telling you, Jamal, that I think because of the pandemic and the isolation and everything that's been going on in the world, I'm afraid that we're going to be facing down a lot more of these catastrophes in the coming months. I'm very worried. I'm worried too. And, and the focus should be again on, we've been talking about this, on gun control, gun control, Mental illness also is a, is, is a major issue, uh, you know, but if you still, uh, if in this country, if you can still purchase a weapon uh, much faster and easier than obtaining a driver's license, we're going to see more of these crazy Jamal, acts. It's worse. It's easier to buy a gun in this country than it is to register to vote. So... Put that in your analysis, that we make it more difficult to vote in this country than we do to buy a a weapon of war. Very sad indeed. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to access all of our previous shows. And we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.